Hello and welcome to We're Watching What? I'm your host Dana, or the DHKs I'm known, and a bevy of films to watch this week. Starting with the latest Marvel film, Eternals, and then the Princess Diana biopic, Spencer. There's also the latest Tom Hanks film that's on Apple TV+, and that's Finch. Then there's The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Claire Foy. And finally, The Souvenir Part 2, starring Tilda Swinton and her daughter, Honor Swinton Byrne. First up is Eternals, which is the latest film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I'm not gonna lie, I have been slightly dreading doing this review because I wanted to love this movie so badly. I love Marvel movies in general and I always go into them wanting to enjoy them, but this one in particular, I felt like I had a lot riding on. I think some of that just comes from the fact that Chloe Zhao is the director, the fact that it's an Asian woman who comes from a very indie background, getting to direct this film with huge star power. You know, you've got Angelina Jolie and Salma Hayek in a Marvel movie, not to mention you've also got people like Gemma Chan, Kumail Nagiani, Kit Harrington, Richard Madden, you got your little Game of Thrones reunion there, you know, Liam McHugh. Hugh, Brian Tyree Henry, Lauren Ridloff, Barry Hogan, and Ma Dong Seok. Like, it's just, uh, it was, it felt like such a recipe for awesomeness. And unfortunately, I personally did not come out of it loving it. It's not to say I had a bad time during the movie. I don't think it's a bad movie, but I don't think it's going to rank as anyone's favorite Marvel movie of all time. I mean, maybe it will, but for me personally, I was really hoping that it would take that spot and it didn't come close to that for me. I spent the whole movie going, okay, when's it gonna click? When am I gonna love this film? When am I? And it just, it never, it never meshed for me in that way. Now that's, again, it's not to say that it's a bad movie. And I think if you're a Marvel fan, you're going to see it and it's fine, you know. Part of the challenge feels like you're introducing this huge cast of characters and you're also introducing them into a universe that has already been established but we're at this sort of inflection point between the phases and anytime you do an origin story you know there's only so many ways to reinvent the wheel and I think looking at our last Marvel film which was Shang-Chi I thought that one did a good job of being like hey here's a little bit of exposition in the beginning and we're also not going to tie too hard into like here's everything that's been going on with the snap and the Avengers and all this stuff it exists a bit outside of that there are references to all the other events that have been happening over the last however many kajillion movies but it's not focused on that which is good and bad right because then it's like oh okay well we don't have these pre-established warm feelings towards these characters you have to build that from the start but when you're building that with so many characters I do think it becomes a challenge. My friend Marianne, right after we saw it, said something very insightful. She said, this should have been a Disney Plus series and Falcon and Winter Soldier should have been a movie, which I completely agree with. Because there are these great scenes between all these characters and, you know, it's a big family, essentially. And so the dynamics between them are inherently full of opportunities for drama and storytelling. But because there are so many and because we do have this sort of larger plot to get to, those moments feel a little bit rushed and I would have loved to see more of them. And I do think something like a Disney Plus series could have given us more time to do so. I think the acting is fine to good. I think there are a couple standout moments and I won't talk about them because I don't want to spoil anything. I also, this is the thing. This movie gives us, I think, our first Marvel sex scene ever, a Bollywood dance sequence, you know, a gay couple, a deaf character. So it, it had all of these elements and I just, I wanted to love it so badly, but I felt like at the end of the day, it was a decent entry into the MCU. Where we go with the characters and how they integrate into the larger story might provide more interest down the line, but I, I didn't come out of this going, oh my God, when's the next one coming, I'd inject it directly into my veins. And again, I really wanted to like this movie. And, but I'll also caveat, you know, the action is fine. It's a long movie. I should say that. It's two hours and 37 minutes. And again, this feeds back into the, hey, this would have been better as a longer form storytelling moment for me as well. And I probably should have known this with the Chloe Zhao being at the helm thing. She's not exactly, she's not really known for her comedy, but I do like the Marvel movies that have a bit more of the humor in them. You do have humor in this. I think, I mean, obviously you have Kumail Nagiani in it. He is a very funny character. Also actually Lauren Ridloff and Ma Dong-seok. Like they, you know, there are those moments, but because we're also 
balancing that between the broody darkness of some of the other folks. I think that also in my personal rankings probably brought it down a little bit like Thor Ragnarok is one of my favorite Marvel movies of all time which tells you tonally where I gravitate towards. But as I said if you're a Marvel fan, you're gonna go. It's gonna be fine. You're not gonna hate the movie. I don't think anyone will hate this movie. I just don't think you might be as compactly invested in it as some of the other films have been able to establish out of it. And I think my other big criticism, and this is not just limited to Eternals, any of these films, and this is, tends to be true for the superhero genre, where you rely mostly on CG faceless enemies and they're very, very CG. I, I don't love that. I do love when we have personified villain. I think this is why Loki is one of the greatest Marvel villains of all time because you can see their side of it but this one does have a lot of moments with you know the sort of creaturey attacks and that type of stuff that's in the trailers that's not a spoiler so that for me also I think took a little bit away from it but overall I am going to give this a 3.6 out of 5. I'm going to take a quick break and be right back. And I'm back. And then changing gears completely, the next film I have is Spencer, which is a biopic about Princess Diana. And I think this is another one where expectations played a lot into it. It's been getting super hyped up. And so I was like, okay, I bet it's going to be good. You know, uh, everyone, Kristen Stewart plays Princess Diana, which is a interesting casting choice. Uh, I think her accent, uh, maybe my ear for it is not the most accurate, but it, to me, it did seem a little cartoonish, but I have to give her credit. I think one thing that she really probably connects with, with the character of Princess Diana is not wanting to be in the spotlight. So in those moments, I did feel like there was an authenticity to her performance. The rest of the cast is rounded out by Timothy Spall, Jack Farthing, Sean Harris, and Sally Hawkins. It takes place over a Christmas weekend with the Royals and Diana is just like not having a good time, which is something I completely understand. I, I believe it takes place towards the end of the disintegration of her marriage, but she's still technically married. And and it just, again, it wasn't exactly my cup of tea. I do think there are strong performances. I was distracted by the accent part. It's from director Pablo Lorraine, who just seems to enjoy making movies about famous sad women. He made Jackie with Natalie Portman. And it's a beautifully shot film. The costuming, I'm sure is going to win many awards because it looks very real to the photos I've seen of Princess Diana in the same dresses. But overall for me, it was a little more meandering than I was expecting. I think part of it is most of us inherently already have a sympathy for this character. And so it's riding a little bit on that. So the performances might not need to be as strong because we already are aware of the situation she was in. You know, they don't have to explain it to us. And I think it gets to shortcut in a lot of those ways, right? We understand the dynamic she has with her terrible husband. We understand the, the tension she has between the paparazzi and how, how she's trapped in this you know they don't even have to explicitly explain oh her husband is seeing another woman you know if you were to go into this and you didn't know anything about Diana or the royal family or you know the monarchy in England no you would probably be like what the hell is going on here and not every film has to be an origin story and build it up from the beginning you know much like Eternals is technically an origin story this one is not trying to be that but I did gravitate a bit more towards the crown's version of Diana than this one and maybe this is because the crown so far has only shown her in uh, the earlier stages of this and this is really towards the end of it and when things are falling apart but I think if you see the trailer and you gravitate towards this it's going to give you exactly what it delivers in the trailer if you see it and you go eh, this is probably not for me. This is not one where I'm necessarily going to say, no, 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 you have to go see it. It's the performance of a lifetime. I think it's well-crafted and, and decently acted, but it isn't trying to draw in an audience who wasn't already invested in the topic. But I personally am going to give it 3.8 out of 5. And then there's the new Apple TV Plus original film Finch, which stars Tom Hanks and, and a robot. I, again, I go into 
every movie I see wanting to like it because I'm about to spend let's say an hour and a half to two hours of my life watching something. So I never go in being like oh I hope this is terrible. But sometimes you just know a movie is not going to be great when you go into it and you hope otherwise but then when it's terrible you're like yep that tracks. And I think Finch is terrible because it doesn't have anything to say. It almost feels like an AI wrote this movie and it was like, okay, people like Tom Hanks. People like when Tom Hanks has to talk to himself essentially, but we'll give him something to talk to that's like Wilson Plus. If you want to watch a great Tom Hanks performance where he has to sort of talk to something that's essentially inanimate, watch Castaway again, but don't watch Finch. So the premise is Tom Hanks is amongst the sole survivors in a post-apocalyptic world. He is somehow a robotics expert and Bill a robot companion to take care of his dog for him when he's gone. And look, I like Tom Hanks a lot. I don't think he's an actor who's able to chameleon at all, so he's pretty much always playing Tom Hanks, but because it seems like real Tom Hanks is actually a genuinely nice guy, you tend to go into his movies thinking like, I'm gonna go in with a certain amount of generosity towards this. And I love robots. I Like, Wally is one of my favorite films of all time. Or, you know, recently the animated film Ron's Gone Wrong. In fact, I think it's very funny when, you know, robots like don't know what they're doing, and there's, there's always a little bit of humor with that. So there are elements to this film that I certainly was receptive to, but then when I started watching it, I was like, this is, doesn't make any sense logic-wise. The story is pretty much pointless. Again, it's Tom Hanks and it's the robot, and the robot logic really frustrated me, and, and this might be, again, just a me problem, but, you know, he built this robot with, it has an AI, it starts to learn things, but it just becomes next-level tedious. He constantly gets super frustrated at this creation, essentially, of his, but it's also like he doesn't bother to explain it, and... The robot seems to have a personality and be inquisitive about things in a very human way, but there is absolutely no explanation of why it would be so. Like, they give it a bunch of quirks, it starts fidgeting at certain points, and I'm like, that's not a something a robot would do. A robot doesn't need to fidget, but they don't try and explain away as like, actually, it's modeled on the human brain, and we've done this, and therefore it has, it, you know, it grows a personality and all that stuff. And this is getting into the nitty-gritty details of sci-fi. But, by the same token, a great sci-fi movie, or a great movie in general, if it's telling a wonderful story, you will ignore all of those things. You won't focus on that. In fact, you'll find it endearing, right? You'll be like, oh my god, that's adorable. The, you know, the robot's nervous, or whatever it may be. But because there was no heart to this story, or the heart feels like it's relying on the fact that, like, people like dogs, for example, The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, which I'll talk about a bit, has features cats a bunch, but it doesn't rely on the presence of cats and people's affinity for cats for you to invest in the story itself. So... Again, I, like I hated this movie because I don't think it had anything to say. It just relied constantly on tropes. It took a bunch, it tried to take a bunch of shortcuts and failed being like, well, people like these things. Therefore, if we do this, they'll automatically care about these characters. You don't, it, th that doesn't work. And Tom Hanks can't save this movie. And Caleb Landry Jones is this robot can't save this movie. And the poor dog that's in this movie can't save this movie. I'd like to point out that Tom Hanks has shown that he has the acting chops and the story can be there. He had more chemistry with Wilson, the inanimate volleyball who can't talk back in Castaway than he does with this robot that's able to speak to him. And then if you want to watch a cute movie about a robot friendship that maybe he's gone a little bit awry, watch Ron's Gone Wrong. But I absolutely cannot recommend Finch, even if you already have Apple TV Plus and it's available to you. I am only going to give it one and a half out of five. And then the next film I have is called The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne. It is available on Amazon Prime Streaming and... Sometimes I watch films and I go, 
this film is not earning this moment out of me. I recognize that there is something going on in my own personal life that is impacting my viewing of this and it is getting more emotion out of me than it deserves. That was my viewing experience with The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne. It's not the movie's fault. In fact, it benefited from it. But I don't know why. I was just feeling really emotional when I watched this film. So it definitely got some tears out of me. It's a biopic about the British artist Louis Wayne who drew cats and essentially, according to this film, may have been responsible for popularizing cats in pop culture and media and as pets as a whole. I tried to look into that a little bit more, but I, you know, this this movie may have been a stretch on that one. He's played by Benedict Cumberbatch in this, which was another reason I was like, all right, I'll go see this movie. And his eventual wife is played by Claire Foy, another great reason to go see it. The cast is a, a pretty strong British who's who of people. It's, you know, the two of them, Andrea Riceboro, Toby Jones, Amy Lou Wood, Olivia Coleman, because is it a British film without Olivia Coleman? Probably not. Sophia DiMartino, Jamie Dimitriou, and then Taika Titi shows up for a little bit and you know I'll pretty much watch him in anything but the film is fine you know I don't think it's anything unexpected there are a little bit of sort of psychedelic moments it does deal with mental illness those moments are handled in sometimes an oversimplified sort of rudimentary way but there's sort of a blunt force to them that does evoke emotion I think the thing that did hold it together for me was Claire Foy and Benedict Cumberbatch's relationship you know these are two, they're playing two characters who are yeah it's funny they're playing two characters who are supposedly like societal outcasts or not outcasts but they're just sort of like funky don't fit in folks and yet they're played by two of the most you know gorgeous talented British actors of modern day and so it's like okay all right sure you can but I do think that their love story in it is probably the core of it and then if you like cats there are a lot of them in this I waited to review this movie until it came out on streaming it did have a brief theatrical window but I do think this is one that maybe you could like put on with a nice cup of tea at home and that'd be a fine viewing experience but I wasn't gonna be like hey rush out to a theater to see this movie it's a subjective and interesting look into the rise of popularity of cats and we know how much the internet loves cats and then part of it is a love story that I do think is relatively well told aside from that I'm not gonna rag on this as I said I cried a little bit I don't know if most people are going to I think it was just me having a bad day but I do think that there's enough to connect to that I'm not gonna be like nobody see this movie so I personally am gonna give it three out of five and then the last film I have this week is called The Souvenir Part 2, and I admittedly had not seen The Souvenir, and so I did a double feature of these films. It's directed by Joanna Hogg, and my understanding is that it is a semi-autobiographical look at her time in film school. So not having seen the first one and watching them back to back, you cannot see Part 2 without having seen Part 1, and admittedly very rarely does someone go to a sequel for a film without having seen the first part. I have done this before, but only with something like Paddington, where I knew I didn't really need to see the first part this one you absolutely need to see the souvenir in order to have the souvenir part two make sense it stars honor swinton Byrne, who is the daughter of tilda swinton tilda swinton also happens to be in these movies and both the souvenir and the souvenir part two take place during the protagonist's time in film school in the first part she gets involved in a relationship with an older man who it's not a healthy relationship by any means possible and then the second part is sort of dealing with the fallout from that I felt a little bit triggered at some of the film school. The film is very meandering, and I think I didn't end up liking The Souvenir Part 1, but because I'd committed to watching The Souvenir Part 2, I just felt compelled to watch through it. And I actually, I think I liked The Souvenir Part 2 a little bit better, but I actually don't think that makes it a better film. So the the first one focused on the relationship between Honor Swinton Burns' character and a character played by Tom Burke. And my frustrations with their relationship were probably why I didn't like the movie as much, but it gave something sort of, I think, tangible to root the film in 
But then the second part, the one that is coming out right now, is the fallout from that. And I think the character feels untethered, which makes sense given what happens in the first one. But then the whole film feels untethered as a byproduct of that. And then the things that were sort of annoying and triggering to me were the the uh, insecurities of the film students, just again, having gone to film school and been on sets with people where, you know, they're like changing up the lighting and they it just nobody has any idea what anybody's doing and you're all just faking it till you make it. I totally get that. That might this is a me thing. This is an art kid thing. I think other art kids will recognize those moments as very successfully portrayed on film. And I think the other thing about these movies is that they really are, they, I feel like they are aimed at fellow art and former art school students. But the lack of the relationships tying down the first film for better or for worse, those being absent in the second part made it feel like more meandering. It also made it feel less dark because I was just really frustrated by the darkness of the first one. And, and I think part of that speaks to the success of the first one where I, I do, even though I don't particularly love these characters, I'd like, I want you to be happy and succeed. And why can't you see what's going on here? And you know, all these things, you're still sort of rooting for them. But then in the second one, because that is absent, you're just like, what are you doing? I, I truly don't know. I'm not in a bad way, but it's, it doesn't start out in a bad way. But it's just like, I don't get what you're doing. And because the character doesn't get what they're doing, it just feels like a sort of self, self-indulgent exploration or diary of what this person was feeling at the time. But there still needs to be a plot. And then I think this summarizes it well. The fact that there's a film within the film and the, you know, it's an artistic interpretation of their art school thesis and all that stuff. I was just like, and I'm out. But I know that this is the type of thing that will absolutely appeal to some people. So if you liked the souvenir part one, I do think you will probably like the souvenir part two because I didn't like the souvenir part one. I found part two a slog. It, again, I, I think that what I liked about part two was that it was more buoyant but I wouldn't have traded that for the lack of plot that grounded it. So I personally am only going to give this 2.9 out of 5, but I totally acknowledge and recognize that a lot of people are going to like it, and I'm happy for them. That has been it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you could leave us a rating or a review or even consider subscribing.